Let's turn to Exodus chapter 6. We're going to begin at the end of chapter 6. And though we're going to look all the way through almost all of chapter 7 um, this morning, I'm just going to read from 628 to 713. Hear now the word of the Lord. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am Yahweh. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. This is the word of the Lord. You know, I think we all want power at work in our lives, and I'm not just talking about FPL. I'm talking about forces that act on our behalf. Strength that supports us, sustains us, wins the day for us. I think that's why all the, the obsession and preoccupation with superhero movies and things like that and, and watching my kids grow up and see their, their, seeing their draw to such things, how they, you know, how they emulate and want that power and they want it to be working for them. And one of the conversations that, that we would have in my house often with my children is, is how you know What's the difference between a superhero and a supervillain? And very often it's not the strength that they have because in these stories, these modern myths and legends, their strength is very often evenly matched, sometimes identical. But the difference is how they use their power, what they use their power to do. Supervillain uses power for himself and for evil purpose. A superhero uses his power for good and to help others. Now we've called this series that we're looking at of the Exodus mighty to save because in that phrase it unites two of the major themes of this narrative. God's power, he is mighty and what he uses his power for, he is mighty to save. And in these verses that we're looking at today we see God beginning to display his power through Aaron and Moses for Pharaoh and all of Egypt to see. But what is that power for? Is God just showing off? 
No, his power has a purpose. He is mighty to save. As we confessed in our confession of faith, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. We want to know that God is still at work. He is still powerful. And he is. But we stumble when we expect that for God's power to be at work, it has to be in one of those exceptional ways like we see in the stories of Scripture. Forgetting that these amazing events were sometimes thousands of years apart. They were exceptional. They were unique. They were, they were in many ways one of a kind. And yet God still shows His power today, but not necessarily in the extraordinary ways but in far more ordinary ways. And yet the way that God shows His power today follows the same principles that we, that we see even here in Exodus chapter 6 and 7. So with, as with Moses, we see with us that God's power is shown through humble vessels and that God's power is yet opposed by stubborn hearts and God's power is ever and always directed towards a higher purpose. Let's look at those in turn. First, God's power is shown through humble vessels. When we think of a display of power, we're usually thinking of something extraordinary. Fire, force, great might, something to show, invisible, unforgettable display. The power that is at work. But God's mode of showing His power most often goes the other direction. In the verses that precede the ones that I just read, the, the half of chapter of 6 that we skipped over, if you've been following, we just skipped a whole chapter of half of a chapter here, it's because it's a list of names. It's a genealogy tracing from Jacob, who became Israel, all the way down to Moses and Aaron. The genealogy of, of Moses and Aaron, their family history. Why is that suddenly inserted into the story at this point? Well, listen to how that genealogy ends in 626. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt. It was this Moses and this Aaron. As it goes on a few verses later to say, by the way, at the time, Moses was 80 years old and Aaron was 83 years old. It's almost as if the narrative is trying to draw your attention to how simple and ordinary and unremarkable these two men were. And yet it was this self-same Moses and Aaron that the Lord in His wisdom sent to Pharaoh. It wasn't some mighty royal figure. It wasn't some hero. It wasn't some bold warrior. It, it wasn't some angelic messenger. It was just Moses and Aaron, a couple of old guys, that the Lord said, hey, I've got something that I'm going to do through you. Moses, recognizing his inappropriateness for the task, says in verse 30 of chapter 6, hey, I'm of uncircumcised lips, which is his way of saying like untrained, incapable, I can't get it right. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Moses is still looking at things, the whole circumstance. He's even looking at himself the way that Pharaoh would look at it, the way that the Egyptians would look at it, and perhaps even the people of Israel. He's making a worldly judgment about himself and what he can do for God. But the people of God must always learn not to see things the way the world sees them. 
The world looks and makes judgments on certain criteria, certain standards, but but the people of God must always learn not to see things the way the world sees them. We see them from a different perspective. And so God, in answering Moses' objection in chapter 7, verse 1 and 2, says, Moses, I've made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You're going to speak all that I command, and Aaron will tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. God says, look, Moses, I don't care how well you think you can do. You think you're nothing special. You're right. You think you have nothing to give. You're right. But with your nothing, I will do something. You're going to to go before Pharaoh like a god, speaking through a prophet. And as the story continues, the pattern also continues. God begins to perform his wonders, but not using mighty, holy, sacred objects but rather using a simple shepherd's staff that Moses had been carrying around in the desert before the Lord ever appeared to him. Using that very staff to perform wonders in verse 9. Take that staff, Moses, and cast it down before Pharaoh, and it's going to become a serpent. In verse 17, the Lord says, Pharaoh, this is how you're going to know that I'm the Lord. With the staff that's in my hand, I will strike the water in the Nile, and it's going to turn to blood. Through humble, simple things, be it a stick or a servant, God shows His power. In fact, the tendency of God throughout Scripture is to use the simple, to use the weak, to use the common, and through that to make Himself clearly more powerful. I know not everybody's into classical music, so this illustration is not for the superhero fans, it's for the classic music fans out here. Yeah, there's a, I love piano concertos. And there's a piano concerto that I've heard several times. I've always thought it was very beautiful. Didn't think anything too particular, too particularly special about it until just this week as I was listening to it on the radio. And before they played it, they happened to mention, by the way, the Ravel concerto in D major was composed by famous composer Maurice Ravel at the request of a man named Paul Wittgenstein. Paul Wittgenstein was a piano player who in the first months of World War I lost his right arm. And he came to Ravel and said, can you write a piano concerto that only uses my left hand? And Ravel thought, that is quite a challenge. That would be great. And so he did it. Now, I've listened to this piece many times and it never occurred to me there was only one hand doing all of it. And that was Ravel's point, was to write something so impressive and so beautiful that once you realize it's only one hand, and and usually the weaker hand of a piano player at that, it seems even more amazing. And that's what God does. He accomplishes great works through the humble, through the weakened, through the untalented, the unskilled, the inappropriate. Or as Paul, Paul recognizes this when he's praying for release from an affliction that was, that was weakening him. In 2 Corinthians 12, he prays that God would take this affliction away because he's tired of being so weak. And God says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect or complete in your weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I'm going to boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities, because when I am weak, then I am strong. 
Because when I am weak, it's clear that I am stepping out of the way. And the only explanation for what is happening is that God Almighty is working through me. It's not my skill. It's not my smarts. It's not my strength. It's God making it happen. God works through us. Even though we feel weak. Even though we feel like we are not special. God works through us because in doing so, he shows how powerful he is. It sets up a contrast like we see in 2 Corinthians 4, where Paul says that we have this treasure, and he's speaking of the gospel, the power of God. We have that treasure in jars of clay, which if you are reading Paul when he originally wrote this to his original audience, you're like, no, Paul, you don't put a treasure in a jar of clay because it's not secure. A jar of clay breaks, it cracks, it's brittle. And it doesn't show off how amazing your treasure is. You need something that shows how cool it is and something strong and secure and ornate and decorative. That's where you put your treasure, Paul. He says, no, we have this treasure. God put his treasure in jars of clay, weak, inappropriate, crumbling vessels in order to show that this surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So God, God's power is shown through humble vessels. But we can be confident that God goes beyond just talk in this. He's not just saying, hey, you be humble, you be weak. God acts on that. Because His greatest act of salvation, the mightiest working of God's power, was when He made Himself humble. As we see in Philippians 2, Jesus was in the form of God. But he didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. So instead, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He didn't stop there. He humbled himself even further by becoming obedient to the point of death, even a shameful death like that of the cross. In Jesus, we see God showing his power and bringing salvation in a form that nobody would have expected the form of a humble servant. In Jesus, God displays His power to save, not as a mighty warrior, not as a terrifying deity with thunder and lightning and flame, but rather as a child in a manger, as a carpenter's son, as a homeless teacher, as a crucified criminal. He takes on the form of weakness, and in that form shows the greatest power by defeating sin, death, and all the forces of hell. How mighty is that? And for you, what does that mean? In 1 Corinthians 1, the people of God are described in this way. Consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise. Gee, thanks. According to worldly standards, not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God did that on purpose. God chose what was foolish in the world's eyes to shame what is wise from the world's perspective. God chose what is weak by the world's standards in order to shame what is strong by the world's standards. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, not good, not strong, not worthy, not influential, not beautiful. God chose the things that are not in order to bring to nothing the things that are 
so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Consider, brothers and sisters, that this is how God works. This is how God displays His power, through what is humble. God does not need you to be a superstar. He doesn't need you to work your way up and be the best possible whatever that you can be. He doesn't need you to excel and be excellent and amazing and better than other people for him to say, oh, there's someone that I can use. No, he's looking around for jars of clay, humble vessels that he can entrust with his incredible treasure. To the extent that you obey him, he will use you. So do not accept a worldly view of yourself or of others, a view that judges by looks, by skill, by smarts, by wealth, or any other earthly standard. God's power is displayed through humble vessels, through the mother, day in, day out, raising a child and teaching them the ways of the Lord, exhausted though she may be. Through the retiree saying, friend, I don't have a lot to give, but is there anything I can do for you? I have a little time this week through the person at work standing up and saying, it might cost me my job, but that is not right and we can't do that. It doesn't have to be an exceptional person. It doesn't have to be a mighty person. God uses the humble and shows His power as He did in Christ. But what about when that doesn't work? Right? Reading this chapter, we might think that God's power has been sufficiently displayed through the humble instruments of Moses, Aaron, the staff. The staff became a serpent. The Nile becomes blood. Wouldn't that convince anybody, any reasonable person? But no, we also see here that just as God's power is shown through humble vessels, it is also opposed by stubborn hearts. Look, the magicians turned their staffs into serpents as well. In verse 12, each man cut down, cast down his staff and they became serpents. And then they turned water into blood just like Moses did. In verse 21, there was blood through all the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. And yet if we look closer, the magicians could only imitate God's power but could not match it or defeat it. In verse 12, Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. They didn't even have a staff to go home with. It got swallowed up by Aaron's staff. That is crazy to picture. Not only that, sure, they turned water into blood, but not the whole Nile. And they couldn't turn the Nile back into water, could they? So we have what should be a convincing display of God's power. And look at Pharaoh's response in verses 22 and 23. Despite all this, Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. He would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And Pharaoh turned and went into his house. And he did not take even this to heart. Despite all that, he doesn't believe. This is not just about Pharaoh, though. This is something we need to observe very carefully because Pharaoh is an example that teaches us that even with plenty of proof, people will still reject God. The problem is deeper than our minds. The problem is in our hearts. This is important because we, the, the church in modern Western culture, we have in many ways bought into 
a view of human nature and mankind that, that is uh, the product of the Enlightenment. It's a Cartesian view based on philosophy. It's a view that basically says what we are at our core, we are thinking creatures. That's, all, that's, that's what we are at our very root. We are rational. And that given the right information, given the facts, we will believe it and we will make right choices. And if we don't, the problem is simply that our minds have not yet been convinced. We haven't gotten enough information. We need more proof. Our, our whole approach as a culture to education is founded on this. That if we give proper information, we will get proper results. In the church, we lean heavy into this. In our evangelism, we act as if the only thing people need is to hear the right information. If we can word things just right, if we can use good apologetics, if we can answer all their objections, we can convince their brains of the truth, and then belief will follow. But no matter how much truth you put before a stubborn heart, it will always find a way to reject it. Case in point, the Flat Earth Society. It's a real thing. And as they once advertised, they have members all over the globe. <laughs> Unironically advertised that. The, the Flat Earth Society is a real thing. If you go to their frequently asked questions, the first question is, is this for real? Yes. That's their answer. Yes. We're, they're serious about this. And what's frustrating about it, I spent more time than I should have on their website this week. What's frustrating about it is every objection you can present, every photograph, Every scientific example, every eyewitness testimony of astronauts who have flown above the earth and looked down upon it, they've got an answer for it. They've got an answer for that objection. Doesn't matter because their hearts are already committed to it. And anything can be explained away if your heart is committed to what you want to believe. So the answer for us there is that it doesn't matter how much Pharaoh sees, it will not persuade him because his heart is hard and stubborn and convinced. Do not crave a mightier display of God's power. How often have you found yourself thinking, oh, if only God would write the gospel up in the sky, people would believe. You know what? They wouldn't. If only God would just show up and tell us that he's real. How'd that work out for Jesus? Okay, A mightier display of God's power will not persuade a mind that is ruled by a stubborn, hardened, unrepentant heart. Pharaoh's problem is not that he didn't have enough proof. Not that he didn't know enough about God. Pharaoh's problem is that his heart is captive to a competing kingdom. His loyalty binds him to something else that is opposed to God. And so everything he sees and experiences, even the entire Nile River turning to blood at the command of the Lord, that's going to be filtered through his heart's prior commitment. This is why in Ephesians 6, familiar verse for us, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Unbelief is a spiritual battle, not a logical or rational one. Did you hear that? Do you believe that? Unbelief 
is a spiritual problem, not a rational or logical problem. And so victory will only come by the work of God defeating, overcoming, and liberating <clears throat> captive hearts. But praise be to God, that's exactly what he has done for his children and what he continues to do today. Through the gospel message, the Holy Spirit overcomes spiritual deadness and makes people alive to believe. Not because they've seen enough proof, not because they've read the whole cover to cover of evidence that demands a verdict or any other apologetic work. Those things are good. They have their place. God uses them absolutely. But reason itself does not change the heart. And brothers and sisters, this is good news for so many of us who love someone who has a stubborn heart and who is rejecting the gospel. Because it means that the problem is not that we haven't figured out the right combination of words and arguments and objections and answers to change their mind. 1 Corinthians 1, we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles, but, but to those who are called, Jews and Gentiles, He is Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. When God calls those who once thought the gospel foolishness or a stumbling block or offensive or ridiculous or not worthy of their time or illogical or whatever objection they use to those who are called by God, their heart is transformed and a stubborn hard heart embraces the gospel. God shows his power through humble vessels, and yet that power is opposed by stubborn hearts that God alone can change. There's one more thing we see about God's power here. It's directed towards a greater purpose. Because in the midst of all this, we have to not lose sight of why God is displaying His power. It's not about convincing or shaming Pharaoh Again and again in these verses, God brings His higher purpose into view because God's power is directed towards a greater purpose than just showing off, just showing His power. He's not like the toddler who comes running up to you. Look how strong I am! Look how much I can lift up! If you've ever had a toddler, you've seen them do that, been around them for five minutes. They want to show you how strong they are. They want to show you what skill they have. God is not running around trying to show off it's power with a purpose. Chapter 7, verses 4 and 5, God says, I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. That's why we sang this morning, uh, O quickly come, dread judge of all. Because though that psalm begins with the idea of judgment, we're calling on God to judge because with judgment comes liberation and salvation for His children. The Egyptians shall know that I'm the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. And then before the plague of blood in verses 14 and following, the Lord tells Moses that Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He won't let the people of go, go. He will not let the people go. And so he says, go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's standing out by the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. Take in your hand the staff, the very staff that had been turned into a serpent, and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness, but so far you've not obeyed. With each mighty act, and we're going to see this in the next few weeks as we look at the plagues, 
With each mighty act, Moses reminds Pharaoh and scripture reminds us that God is doing this in order to save his people. God's power is being displayed in order to deliver, to rescue, to heal, to save. And yet, that's not the highest purpose. That's not the end game. That's not the main point. And sometimes we we miss that. We talk about salvation and forgiveness as if that's God's number one goal. That's what he's all about. That's why everything exists is that he can save his people. And that's not scripturally true. There is yet a higher goal for which salvation serves as a path to. In chapter 7, verse 5, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the people of Israel from among them. Chapter 17, thus says the Lord, by this Pharaoh you shall know that I am the Lord when with my hand I strike the water that's in the Nile and turn it into blood. The rescue of God's people has a greater purpose. Their salvation will give glory to God among the nations. Showing how powerful and how loving God is. Years later, decades after these events in Exodus, as the Israelites were finally about to enter the promised land, they sent spies in to check out the city of Jericho. And those spies were almost captured and they had to flee for their lives. And they went into the house of a prostitute named Rahab and they hid in her house and she kept them safe, saying these words, I know that the Lord, that Yahweh has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard, we heard, How the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Rahab, a prostitute in the distant Canaanite city of Jericho, decades after the events of Exodus, has heard. And in hearing, she has believed. And in believing, she becomes one of the great, 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 great grandmothers of Jesus Christ. The power of God serves the higher purpose of spreading his name, making his goodness known, showing his power, showing his goodness, and bringing men and women to know him. And the same is true, people, of your salvation in Christ. God did not save you because you deserved it. God did not save you because he owed you. God did not save you because you were somehow better than other people. Your salvation from beginning to end served one main purpose, the highest possible goal, which is to display to the universe the power and the love of God. Listen to the words of Ephesians 1. I'm going to skip around a little bit. In love, God predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. In Him, we've obtained an inheritance so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. To the praise of His glory. And in Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Why? To the praise of His glory. It's like this echo, this theme that keeps coming back. Why 
Why did God choose to save you? Why do you have an inheritance in Christ? Why has he given you the Holy Spirit? It's to the praise of God's glory and his grace. So much so that that eventually in chapter 3 of Ephesians, Paul says that through the church, through the people who have been saved by God, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. When he uses that phrase, rulers and authorities, it's the same thing we were talking about earlier, wrestling not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, and authorities. We're talking about angelic and demonic beings who because of what God has done in your life cannot deny the power of God, cannot deny the love of God, cannot deny the wisdom of God. So what difference does that make in our lives? What does that have to do with us? Many ways we can answer that. I just want to zero in on one of them this morning, this afternoon as I wrap up. If our view of life and salvation is centered on us, then we miss out on the greater thing that God is doing. The Hebrews in Egypt could not, did not understand that God's plan was for something bigger than their comfort, bigger even than their rescue, that he had in mind the Rahabs of the world. He had in mind the Christ that would come from them. He had in mind far bigger things than they could ever dream He had them in a story that he was writing, a story far bigger than they could picture. And you, child of God, you are in that same story. Not a different but similar story. You are in the same story, a later chapter, yes, but the same story, the story of a God who created the universe and mankind in order to put his goodness on display. And the story of an enemy who in hatred seeks to tear down and destroy that beauty and that goodness, and who hears the promise in the garden that that through the offspring of the woman, he would be destroyed. And who hears the promise to Abraham that through his offspring, all nations would be blessed. And an enemy who incites Pharaoh to violence to try to wipe out all of the nation of Israel so that those promises could not be fulfilled and God's good purposes in the universe would be undone. And yet God is at work to show that His power cannot be blocked. His beauty will not be destroyed. And you, you, in your daily struggles, in your confusion, in your pain, in your weariness, in your temptation, in your growth, you are continuing to play out that story. In your salvation, in your sanctification, in ways that you may never comprehend, God is working in you. And I don't mean that in the plural sense. I mean that to each and every one of you. Through you. Through what's happening in your life. The good, the bad, the easy, the hard, the, the stuff you understand and the stuff you don't. God is doing something that First Peter 1 verse 12 tells us angels look down, they stoop down in curiosity and in confusion and in awe, wanting to understand what is going on here. God is putting His goodness, His power, and His wisdom on display. That knowledge should transform your self-focused desires and plans for your life. 
It should temper your frustration and your impatience. It should equip you to endure whatever road the Lord has placed before you and transform your words of complaint into words of praise, saying, I may not know what God is doing in my life and I may not understand why, but he will be glorified in it and so I can and will be faithful. I said at the beginning, we all want a connection to power in our lives. We want to know there is some force working in our favor that is able to do what we want it to do. We usually translate that desire to powerful friends, political parties, societies and social groups that are advancing an agenda that we support. We want power because power gives us security. Power gives us hope. Power gives us peace. The gospel assures us that because Christ has died in humility and risen in power, we have the security, the hope, the peace, the future that we crave as we seek power everywhere else. And child of God, that power is at work in your life, not because you are a mighty, memorable hero of the faith, not because you are a moral, righteous figure who deserves it, but because through your humility and your weakness and your failure and your brokenness and your struggle, God will show others how mighty He is. And though He is opposed, He will not be defeated until the full story of His redemption is complete. And He is revealed as the mighty, sovereign, gracious Lord of all. How does this story end? How does your story end? I may not know the details, but your story ends with you taking the crowns that are given you and crowning your Savior as the Lord of life, as the Lord of love, as the Lord of peace, crowning Him with every crown because He is mighty, mighty to save. Let us thank Him. Let us praise Him for that. And let us ask Him to teach our hearts to live in light of that. Our Heavenly Father, You are mighty to save. We cannot deny that. But our hearts, our hearts get so weakened when we don't see it the way that we want to. May we see in Your Word that You do not fail. And Your expression of power may not be in the ways that we expect or think. But because of Christ Jesus, we know that it will not fail. So it is in His name that we trust and in His name that we pray.